Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... Assemble a whole bunch of our peers who we could see like ourselves. We're going to be closing our doors to our customers at exactly the same time as we were going to have food insecurity really being having a spike and a whole bunch of people going into unemployment really facing food insecurity issues. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 270 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Rebecca Scott. Beck has spent her whole career working in innovation. The first half of it in science at the CSIRO, the second half as a social entrepreneur. She's particularly interested in how we can solve complex systemic issues using multidisciplinary practice. She's the co-founder and CEO of Street, a Melbourne-based social enterprise that works towards human and planetary health. Street works with marginalised young people aged 16 to 24 years and provides them with a healthy self, job and home. The organisation runs a portfolio of 12 food service businesses, including cafes, an artisan bakery, a catering company, and a coffee roastery. And in its first decade, Street worked intensively with over 500 young people and with a further 1,500 through its outreach programs and short courses. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Beck's views on the current state of the social enterprise sector in Australia, and we'll learn from Beck's deep insights and perspective on social innovation and enterprise to create healthy people and a healthy planet. So Beck, it's a true pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Tom. Likewise. So, Beck, look, to kick things off, can you please share a bit about your background and what led you to working in the social enterprise sector? Yeah, sure. Look, I think I fell into it almost accidentally. I was working at the CSIRO and I would probably, if I typified the kind of work that I was doing, I would say I've always been fairly socially entrepreneurial in, in the kind of roles that I've had. And my first decade kind of in science, I had a whole heap of different jobs at the CSIRO but the typical thing that I was doing across those roles is building new stuff so that might have been teams and projects and Mm. initiatives so certainly I had a lot of building experience but not with the same complexity obviously you know running my own organization but I, I kind of stumbled into social entrepreneurship when I went on holidays actually I was doing some volunteer work in Vietnam for three months I took some annual leave to go and do a volunteer project and stumbled upon a social enterprise cafe in Hanoi and that kind of that first from that first you know meal onwards I was hooked and I yeah. I'd never heard of social enterprise prior to that I think if I had known there was such a field or such an area of an approach to solving problems I probably would have ended up doing it sooner mm. but Certainly, you know, when I went off to uni, there was no such thing as a degree in social entrepreneurship. Yes. But when I discovered it, 
it was like a, a light bulb moment for me. It was really, really defining. Mm. It's amazing that <laughs> literally from discovering that cafe in Hanoi, planting a seed and seeing what is possible through social enterprise, that you really went on to co-found then and, and be the CEO at Street. And I spoke a little bit in this intro about the amazing impacts that you're making. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about this organization and you know some of the key challenges that you faced in basically turning this into one of Australia's social enterprise successes. Oh, well, look, thank you for saying that. But it's been a one step forward, five steps back oh, <laughs> kind yeah, of absolutely. decade, as it is, I think, for the majority of social enterprises. I think the thing that probably we did right from the beginning is we built an idea of scaling right into the DNA at the front end. Yeah. So we said what we want to do is we want to build a model that can be highly impactful and be self-sustaining and we've got this decade-long goal to, to get to that sustainability point but we're going to, you know, we understand that in a low-margin industry like hospitality, we're probably only going to achieve that through scaling. Yes. So at that stage, we certainly, the way we were going to scale was probably quite different to how we, you know, have ended up scaling. So we anticipated being a, a whole fleet of street food carts and we're mm. certainly not that. But certainly that idea of scaling to try and address the scale of the problem. So yeah. we always, whilst I believe very, very heavily in local solutions and place-based work, mm. we wanted to really be able to say in the local area that we're in or in the city that we're in, yeah. we're actually shifting the dial. And you know, what we could see really kind of you know, in projects around the world, the social enterprise sector has on the whole stayed as a lots of little cottage industries so scaling is particularly hard I think these types of organizations mm. but we wanted to really see if we could give it a crack and see could you scale these sorts of organizations and really shift the dial on those problems problem like youth disadvantage there's <laughs> it sounds easy to do kind of looking forward but in hindsight we realized it was a lot lot harder than we thought it would be yes and now I understand kind of the intricacies of, of why it's harder than it would seem. Mm. You know, if you look around the world and you go, oh, well, you've got franchises all around the world, you know, that have scaled, you know, you can see how the sector has been able to scale or the industry, when yeah. the hospitality and food service industries get scaled. But it's a very, very different thing to try and then apply that same thinking kind of down into a, into a social context. Yes, absolutely. And look, you, you've spoken just now a little bit about that place-based, sort of city-based approach and your focus really on creating impact within that space and place that, that you exist. And, you know, looking at the response to the COVID-19 pandemic last year and the way that you then instigated Moving Feast, and Moving Feast for the people listening is basically a collective of these different social enterprises working together towards what would probably describe as a fair and regenerative food system. I'm keen to hear some learnings here. Like what did you learn in assembling this project, Beck? Because there's lots of different moving parts. And how might others then replicate systems-focused solutions in their own communities? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting challenge and also opportunity. And I, and I think also the, the pandemic brings us extra opportunities and silver linings. Yeah. And so in the first instance, really what we were trying to do is assemble a whole bunch of our peers who we could see like ourselves, we're going to be closing our doors to our customers yeah. 
at exactly the same time as we were going to have food insecurity really being having a spike and a whole bunch of people going into unemployment really facing food insecurity issues. Some of the challenges of doing that work, uh, I mean, obviously, we were trying to do it in a pandemic. So there were all the, the safety sort of issues, having to do it distanced, having to do it in very different operational ways to what we would normally work. Mm. So you know, trying to get 30 organisations working together over Zoom. <laughs> and in some cases, organisations of people we had never even met. So yes. many of those organisations we knew well, but in some cases, you know, the key staff we were working with, we, we didn't know. Yes. But I think the thing that was really exciting, I guess, from that very first conversation it was clear there was nothing but a strong, strong desire to collaborate. Mm. And my sense is if we'd picked up the phone years earlier, we would have found many of those same organisations that were keen to collaborate. But the pandemic was a burning platform for all of us. So one learning was why didn't we do it earlier? Mm. We, We knew that this sort of work needed to be done. So whilst we were responding to the pandemic, certainly we had been redesigning what the food system could look like and the role that we could play in larger collaboration. We were certainly been doing a lot of reading about the food system that Victoria needed, amazing research that has been done for years by food system academics. So the pandemic really, whilst it was us pivoting, it was certainly a strategic pivot that we mm. knew we were moving into that direction anyway. Yeah. But some of the challenges probably have been around how do you quickly create the right kind of vehicle or the umbrella to do that work within? So the obvious kind of governance structure sort of thing, if you're bringing in money to work across a group, how do you, what vehicle does that money sit in? How does it come in? Who's got, not all of the organisations that we're collaborating with have deductible gift recipient status. So they're not actually able to take on granting money. We've got different structures. So some of us are company limited by guarantees, others are incorporated associations. So so we've got we're we're a real kind of assemblage of, of different organizations. And also too, we range in scale from series who would be the biggest, who have turnover of say over fifteen million dollars, a couple of hundred staff, thirty-year-old yeah. organization, through to small organizations who might be two-person organizations mm-hmm. and have revenue of a couple hundred thousand dollars and only be maybe two years old yes so the difference in scale has been a really interesting thing that we've got to deal with because there might be enthusiasm for everyone but just there's different levels of capability and capacity within those organizations a really consistent theme particularly amongst the smaller social enterprises was them saying things like Please understand that we're only small and we're not as big as some of the larger organisations, but please don't leave us behind. Mm. Building a whole heap of kind of projects and activities inside or underneath a larger umbrella that allows an organisation to not only do the work at the right scale for them, but also not be left behind. Yes. And I think that's one of the exciting possibilities in in a collaboration like this, that what you can actually do is draw the smaller organisations almost into the slipstream of some of the larger organisations and you can really do a lot of sharing, a lot of not just of of knowledge but also optimising assets and optimising. We were optimising our facilities and our logistics and there was a large amount of kind of sharing in all directions and we were doing all of our work very much in a 
in a knowledge commons kind of mm. high, you know, very radical, you know, yes. generous sharing of everything really. Yeah. So I think it's a real opportunity to, to not just share knowledge and, and be able to boost some of the smaller enterprises, but also really start to do a lot more business together. Mm. So what does it look like when we start to integrate our supply chains and become customers of each other as well? And most social enterprises don't have, are normally, you know, skating pretty thin to the ice. There's not normally large balance sheets that we have. Yeah. And so if we grew our own internal business through doing business with each other, that you know, say even if we added 10% of revenue to, a, to our bottom lines, that mm. would be really significant for, for many of us. Yes. So I think there's real opportunities to help grow each other. Yeah. And that's before we start to say, well, what are the things that we, we all need and we all procure and, and what would social procurement across the whole group look like? Mm. So if you could start to make savings and get efficiencies as a group, I think there's incredible opportunities for once again kind of collective growth. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some really great insights there, Beck. And look, you've seen a lot of different social entrepreneurs starting things up, collaborating with them directly. What do you see as some of the most important traits of a social entrepreneur and where can they commonly run into trouble? And I probably am used to usually trying to bite off a bit more than I can chew and then (laughs) chewing madly and then trying to hustle as fast and hard as you can and so in that sense I would say that there isn't a day that goes past where I wouldn't be trying to scare myself Mm. I wouldn't be trying to push myself outside my comfort zone and go how the heck would we do that yeah and so part of I think what I've needed to do in this project is try and imagine not just the trajectory of what could one organization scale would actually achieve, you mm. know, say in you know in a period of time, whatever that time period be, but start to think about as a system, what do you get when you don't put one plus one plus one together and get three? But what does one plus one plus one look like when you do it in a highly integrated ecosystem yeah. approach? Yeah. That's the stuff that gives me spine chills. That's mm. the stuff that I want to lie awake at night and imagine because yes. right now where I see us sitting as, as a globe or a, and as a sector kind of within a bigger globe, yes, we're a group of organisations that has come together because of the pandemic, but we are sitting within a way bigger crisis. It's, it's a nested crisis in mm. a way that we're sitting in the climate crisis, which is also an existential crisis as the pandemic has been for many people. Yeah. But, you know, we really as a sector have to do our most courageous and our most evidence-based and our cleverest work in this next decade. Mm. I really believe that we're facing such an existential threat that we've really just got to be so clever about how we work together this, this next decade and incremental growth of each of our individual enterprises mm. just doesn't feel like it's going to achieve yes. what we need to achieve. So if I look around the world and, and see what's most exciting me, it's projects like Catalyst 2030, mm. where what you've got is large distributed addressing of the sustainable development goals, for example, yeah. but doing that in regional or place-based collaboration. So this, this kind of understanding that it's the connecting, you know, we get scaled through distribution and connectivity rather than by, take, you know, by replication or taking one thing and then scaling it to be a really large size. Yeah. So I guess what I'm, really, what I'm really interested in, what does hyper-collaboration look like and how do we do that as a sector 
you know, maybe in more mission-led ways. So, mm. so, so I think those kind of large mission-led projects could be either thematic, it might be around, right, how do we build a fair and regenerative food system? Or they might be around a you know, particular issue that a particular cohort is facing. Yes. So I think it could be, you could slice and dice kind of multiple ways. But I think of it almost as, you imagine if you were building shadow portfolios for the government. Mm. Imagine if the social enterprise sector essentially created the structure and the, the interstitial kind of connective tissue between us all that allowed us to do large mission-led work Mm. against major problems, crises that we were trying to face that were really of that higher order to get us out of the mess that we're in now. Mm. And then we did that in a really clever sort of way, understanding that we'd need to be connecting with outside of the sector as well, that the system work requires kind of all actors being part of that. But that's the sort of stuff that I get really excited about because yeah. it then understands that actually cottage industries and small enterprises connected, creating ecosystems, actually create a phenomenal amount of scale. But our strength then really becomes in our hyperconnectivity. Mm. One of the things that makes, I think, social enterprises so effective as social innovators is that we are close to the ground, that grassroots connectivity. We're bilingual organisations as speaking both business and community, you know, languages. What it means is that we're really those, the adapters. If if you think about, you know, when you go for a holiday and you take, what do they call those kind of universal adapters Mm. that kind of plug into any shop in any country. I kind of see social enterprises as like that. We're really good at at that kind of connectivity between multiple sectors, Mm. multiple parts in the system. So if if we kind of saw ourselves almost setting up like shadow portfolios that were addressing large-scale issues, I get really excited about what that looks like. And I think we're going to need new governance structures. We're going to need new ways of funding work that we do, new ways of creating, I guess, organisations that are quite porous, that that we don't see our organisations as being kind of concreted in or Mm. bounded the same way as they do, but IP and resources and people flowing in and out of our organisations. So, yeah, that's what excites me right now, I guess. Oh, there's just so much potential, isn't there? And, And it's so exciting to hear that because that universal adapter language you use is just so true, Beck. And look, you've mentioned government too. You've mentioned a little bit about social procurement. I'm really interested to hear when we look at social enterprise from more of a policy perspective now, what do you believe are some of these key steps that government really needs to take now to help foster and support an innovative social sector? Or what is it that we need to do with government? Like, what are your Mm. thoughts here? Look, I mean, I I would give a huge thumbs up to our Victorian state government, Mm. particularly in this last, you know, three or four years. It's shown some real leadership in developing its first social enterprise strategy. And whilst it it had a, a range of areas that it was looking at, it really has been doing some incredible work around social procurement. So it's developed a social procurement framework and really has invested heavily, particularly through, for example, its spend in large infrastructure projects. So if you've got a billion-dollar infrastructure project that the government is funding and then 3% of that is procured through social enterprises, you can imagine those big shifts shifts can create phenomenal growth Mm. kind of on the ground. Social procurement has been a really critical one. The gap areas that I still really see both at state level and federal level is many social enterprises 
obviously are working in training and employment pathways for for particular cohorts. So, or, or, you know, or what we call work integration social enterprises Mm. or WISEs. It's fairly rare that work integration social enterprises are embedded or part of the state or federal employment service system. So many of us would be doing the work of employment service providers, but not getting any outcomes payment for it. So I'll give you an example. For our first decade at Street, we've had less than 4% of government funding across that decade, and less than 1% of that has been with our state government. And that that hasn't at all been for creating training and employment pathways Mm. that we do for the young people that we work with. In our first decade, we've done direct service savings to government of $49 million. So we've done an incredible amount of research with particularly we built an incredible model with RMIT University a number of years ago using all of the costs from Treasury of the young people who come to us. Mm. So, you know, what does it cost? And and down to the dollar, what does it cost for a young person who might be incarcerated for a night? What does it cost for one police call out? What does it cost to be going to the emergency ward of a hospital? Yeah one visit so we at that stage had had 400 young people that had come through street and graduated and what we did is we using all the real costs that government gave us we then put those the database of 400 young people into that model and what we found was that at an absolute minimum most young people who came to street were accessing about fifty thousand dollars worth of government funded services each year wow our we we do an intervention that intervention costs of the order of kind of twenty thousand dollars yeah and then what we do is we save of that $50,000 of services that young people mm. were, were accessing, that is saved in year one. So year one, we would save 30000 of that 50000 or more than 30000 actually, but I'm just working in kind of bucket maths here. Mm. But we would save 30000 but then those savings would stick. So the young people that we're working with are right at the pointy end. Mm. You know, our young people, especially those young people who are coming through prison and juvenile justice, they'll be, you know, cost the system four to five million dollars across a lifetime yeah. because they're just in and out of what starts out as juvenile justice but then becomes the adult justice system. So mm. talking about young people who will cost governments and society an incredible amount of money. Yes. And that $20,000 intervention across that one year will be absolutely life-changing. Mm. That's the savings to government and community, but not to mention the incredible difference it makes when you change a life to that life. The yeah. moral obligation that we've got for yeah. to, to help people reach their potential and not just be stuck in a service system going around and around and around. Mm. But if I think about where are the challenges when you're doing holistic work that works across lots of different portfolios of government, we have challenges as social enterprises often because we're not getting funded for that work. Yeah. And we can't go, you know, we don't turn up to Department of Justice and say, hey, we want $200 for this young person savings and then we go to housing and then we get another little bit of money from over here and then another little bit from here. We exist to work holistically, but the funding structures of governments don't do that. So unless we can start to do social impact bonds across Mm. every state and territory and get paid for holistic work, 
or unless we can start to do be part of payment by outcome yep. systems or embedded as part of the employment service provision across states and federal, we're really not getting paid for the work that we do. And I think that's just such an incredibly missed opportunity. Mm. And then at the moment, what we've also got is this incredibly perverse situation that's happening where many other people are being paid for the work that we're doing. So employment service providers in this last decade have been paid over $10 million of work that Street has done. Mm. So we have received no money through the system for the work that we do with young people, but the employment service provider who refers a young person to us will get outcomes payments. They can get those outcomes payments at four weeks, at 13 weeks, at 26 weeks, and at 52 weeks. Mm. Now, if they're, so if they're coming through, for example, a dis, you know, disability employment service provider, they can get up to $25,000 for work that we've done across a year with a young person. Yeah. So it's kind of this you know, ridiculous, perverse situation that not only are we not being funded within existing service provision for that work, but someone else is being paid for that. Mm. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to demonstrate that our models have a far higher efficacy than the existing system that is being funded for low outcomes. If I look at the job active system, the efficacy of a stream C young person that goes through that system, so the most complex young people, yep. the efficacy in the federal government system is 27% as opposed to most social enterprises that will sit between kind of 70 and 80%. Mm. So at the moment, we're just not getting the investment into social enterprises as service providers. So yeah. at the moment, I certainly I'm very, very grateful for the social procurement that happens. Yes. But in a low margin industry, government would have to buy $400,000 worth of sandwiches from us mm. to fund one young person going through a street in a 5% margin industry you know, yes. with a young person costing $20,000. Mm. So it's, it's a really indirect way to try and scale social enterprises only through procurement. We've actually got to be seen as legitimate service providers who are funded to do more of our work. And, and that doesn't say that we flip our models and become highly government dependent, but you imagine if at the moment where we're trying to fund our work entirely through our business engines, you've got to scale then your, your business engine to be so enormous to do that intensive work, whereas if governments became partners in that work, even if for every dollar that they put in, we matched it with a dollar from our own profit, they're still getting a service that's way more effective and better cost yes. than, than their current system. Yeah. We would see, I think, our sector start to really rapidly grow. Mm. And of course, they could do other things like increase the amount of impact investment that we can get and access to affordable capital and they could support groups like yourselves and intermediaries and the support ecosystem yep. and they could could support capacity building but i think probably the most game-changing thing that government could do right now is establish a payment by outcomes type mechanism yep. for our service provision mm. it's a great insight there beck and i certainly see so much potential in that pbo approach and know others like yourself right who are working very hard to make that happen so i think there's almost a whole separate podcast in that for the future but, <laughs> yeah there's, probably, to- there's many podcasts in there i think as this, <laughs> and lots to be learned i think from overseas because australia really is in its infancy in having these conversations you're absolutely right so to finish off there beck what books or resources have inspired you what would you recommend to our listeners 
At the moment, I would say jump online, go to the Catalyst 2030 website and download their incredible thought pieces that they've mm. kind of how they've researched that sits at the back of the project. So it's not a book, but it's a very meaty document. Or they've got actually now a number of amazing reports that exactly. they've, they've commissioned. They're really inspirational. What I'll do is I'll actually mention a, a bunch of reports that I've read this year rather than books because that's yeah, where I've actually got a lot of inspiration this year. Excellent. Another really great approach, and it's not just social enterprises, but it's a bunch of organisations collaborating together on, on, once again, kind of systemic issues and very place-based work, is a project from the UK called Participatory City. Mm. And I've just loved the way that what they've done is they've really understood their local community and activated a whole heap of enterprises and community organisations to come together to, to create a whole fabric of incredible collaborative opportunities and, and really place-based into communities that the lower socioeconomic and that's providing a lot of inspiration right mm. now, beautiful project. Yeah. Last year, I was also really inspired to see a couple of terrific reports that came out in response to the climate crisis, but particularly in the areas of training and employment. And one of those was the Clean Jobs Plan. It was done by, it's called the Alpha Beta Jobs Plan. Mm. And that report identified 76,000 jobs that we need in Australia to green jobs that we, we need urgently. But of those 76,000 jobs, they had a third of those being vocational level. And so if I look at the social enterprise sector and I look at kind of all of the jobs that we need for the future, I say what a terrific opportunity for the social enterprise sector, for example, yeah. to become a real, you know, really jobs focused around what are those clean, green industries that we need, but at that vocational level that we're often working at with people who often haven't finished high levels of schooling and haven't gone to university often don't have high levels of literacy or numeracy or, yeah. or English as a, as a first language. So that was a really, really fantastic read and that's certainly where we're focusing this upcoming decade is starting to think far more around kind of what are those other pathways that we want to create for young people into green jobs yes. and we kickstart the first of those next month, I'm very excited to say, mm. into horticulture and urban farming. So after a decade of having young people training in, in hospitality, you'll now be able to come in and choose as of July to be a young urban farmer or a, a young hospo person. Mm. But but I hope that over time we open up more and more kind of green job pathways. But but yeah, that, that report from the Alphabeta Jobs Plan was, was a real inspiration in that. Then there was also another terrific report called the Million Jobs Plan and that was by a group called Beyond Zero Emissions it actually identified a million jobs that we needed in green industries. So it had a far greater number of jobs. But once again, similar sort of idea that there are these new incredible opportunities to do both social and environmental justice at the same time. So both of those are still, all four of those reports actually are sitting still on my bedside table. I'm also reading at the moment, I'm a super nerdy person who loves reading other people's PhDs. <laughs> 
So I'm actually reading a PhD at the moment. It's an open innovation PhD that was done by someone on the amazing Alice Waters and her San Francisco-based Chez Panisse, which was, uh, for those foodies, she was a really revolutionary food system person Mm. who built a whole community of, of food innovators in California. But the style that I really like working in, that that very kind of open, collaborative, generous with knowledge sort of style. And, yeah. and she's a real kind of food hero of mine. So I've been reading a PhD into kind of how she did that and her open innovation approach. What else am I reading? They're, pro- they're probably the biggies. It is a brilliant list there, Beck. And I, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll make sure that we have links to all of those in this article as well. So if you are listening, jump on through to the article because you'll be able to click on through to Catalyst 2030 and, and these other reports. And we'll see if we can find that PhD in there. And that way people can click on through and, and have a good read themselves. I'm going to add one more, Tom. Go Sorry, I just thought about it. It's actually a couple of years old now, so it wasn't this last year. A piece of really influential work that I read a number of years ago now was actually done by the Victorian Eco Innovation Laboratory Mm. when it existed at the University of Melbourne a number of years ago. There was a piece of amazing cooperative research centre research done imagining what Australia could look like in 2040. Mm. And it was a piece of research called Visions and Pathways 2040. And what it did is it stood back and imagined if we were to try and get to being, let's assume that we've kind of gone forward to to 2040 and we're now in a climate safe environment, we've achieved all of the goals that we wanted from a social and environmental perspective. What are all the different pathways that we could take to get to that clean and green 2040? And what it did is it mapped out all of these pathways that then culminated in four big different directions we could take as a country. And it really kind of dealt with the nuancing of, well, in these four different pathways, how do we end up with a different Australia at the end of each of those? Who has the power in those pathways? Who fixes problems? Is it government? Is it corporations? Is it grassroots community organisations? Who are the actors who really lead the change? What do those cities and neighbourhoods look like at the end of those four different pathways? Mm. And I think what that piece of research did is really helped me grapple with my own strategic planning. You know, when I tried to spend a lot of time thinking about what does 2040 look like yeah. and developing Streets 2040 plan that we did last you know, two years ago now. And it really helped us grapple with which pathway we were on and how we wanted to work and who we wanted to work with. So it was it was a really foundational mm. piece of thinking that really allowed us to inhabit the future but in a really nuanced sort of way and then work back from that future to then backcast where we are now. For those people who love strategic planning, I absolutely love inhabiting the future. That was a really seminal document for me that I'll put a link in the in the podcast too. Wonderful. It is and sounds like a great read there. Beck, and look, you have been just so generous with your insights and your time today in, in true Beck Scott fashion. So thank you so much again, Beck, for this. We will look forward to chatting again in the future and wishing you the absolute best of luck in this onward journey with Street, particularly as you move towards this July date of equipping people and preparing them to get them ready for those green jobs too. Pleasure, Tom. Great to speak to you. 
Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.